when a couple gets married, a tradition we have is to buy them gifts, some wedding presents, and most of the gifts are just stuff. We'll say stuff. You might say junk. We'll just say stuff, like towels, linens, blenders, china. We got all that stuff when we got married. But I don't remember where I heard it, but a while ago I heard someone give what I think now is probably the best gift you could give to a newlywed couple, and that is cooking lessons. Right? That's what I yeah, see. Yep, yep. I mean, if you think about it, they're going to have to spend a lifetime now eating real food. The food of a bachelor will no longer suffice. Top ramen's not going to do it for much longer. And if you give them both cooking lessons, it's going to pay dividends for decades. They both can learn to cook and feed one another, feed their children, feed guests. It's going to pay off for a long time to come. Makes sense. Makes instant sense when you think of it. Sounds like a good gift for a, a newlywed couple. And there's a good spiritual parallel here for leaders in the church. One of the most valuable gifts they can receive is to learn how to study and then teach the Bible. It's like cooking. They they learn to slice and dice and cut up scripture to find the meaning, to find what it means. Yeah, some extra handouts there if anyone needs them. They and then they learn how to prepare what they've learned as a spiritual meal for their spiritual family. We know that the nourishment we need to grow comes from God's word. We learned that this morning. And so as leaders receive the gift of learning how to study and then teach the word, well, that that likewise is going to pay dividends for potentially decades. They're going to be able to feed themselves and even feed others the word of God for a long time. Seems like a valuable thing to learn then, how to study and how to even teach the Bible. Maybe some of you rely entirely on your pastor as a type of, you know, master chef the one who prepares all your meals. And to a degree, that's appropriate, for God has given pastors and teachers to the church to prepare for them meaty spiritual meals to feed the flock. This is one case where we might say the more cooks in the kitchen, the better. Or at least the more cooks in the kitchen who know what they're doing, the better. The more people who are truly trained and equipped to study and teach the Bible, the better. There's a definite skill behind this ta- task, and some get it wrong. We have to always beware false teachers, those who offer up a, a type of poison instead of food. And we also have to beware to a degree that the immature teacher, who though may be well-meaning, often cooks or, or prepares some uncooked food. We don't want you know, spiritual food poisoning, so we want people who, like I said, know what they're doing. But wouldn't it be better if the church had a multitude of people who were trained who had received some cooking lessons, so to speak, who knew what they're doing, they could take a raw text of Scripture and study it and dissect it and find its meaning and then prepare it and garnish it as a biblical meal for the people of God, biblically and accurately. That would be better. And it's along these lines where we come to study this lesson tonight. It's a study on how to teach the Bible. This, I believe, is now Lesson 11 In this biblical leadership series, we're going through uh, really an intro to the world of biblical leadership. And now we're getting to the how-to side side of things. I'm going to get practical in learning the tasks of biblical leadership. We spent many months covering who the leader is to be, the, the character of leadership. Now it's time we've turned a corner, we're into the practice, the tasks. What is the leader to do? And the previous lesson, we covered how to study the Bible. The first of these how-tos, how to study the Bible. And that's foundational. That's foremost. This is how you feed yourself. But now we want to include just a single lesson on how to feed others, how to prepare that spiritual meal for others, how to teach the Bible to others. It's one thing to study the Bible on your own and just take it in for yourself. It's another to study the Bible and then prepare what you have learned for the consumption of others in a digestible manner. That's a little different, but this is an essential skill for the biblical leader. Now, I know a lot of you in here, you're, you're not teachers, and maybe you, you'll never see yourself as a teacher, and that's okay, because we know not all are gifted or called to be teachers in the church. That's fine, and not even every leader will, uh, will lead in the church at as a formal teacher or in a formal manner. There are many who are leaders, but in more of an organizational or administrative way, and that's fine as well. 
For others, you may see yourself teaching you know, someday, but not anytime soon. Maybe you feel you need you know, more training, more development, more learning before you could actually teach the Bible to others. But whatever the case, wherever you're at, I just want to tell you to just take this lesson for what it's worth. It's not like you're going to learn everything about how to teach the Bible in this little hour lesson. But as I keep saying in this whole series on biblical leadership, it's let this be valuable exposure for you when it comes to the task of how to teach. And that is a, a key task for the biblical leader, being able to minister the Word of God. Uh, informally is huge, and this we're going to gear towards a little more of a formal delivery. How do you teach the Word? So take it as, at the very least, exposure to the task. What goes into the task? This is merely going to be an overview to the task of teaching. That's all we can really do with the time we have. It, it could be its own lesson planned entirely. For some of you, it might whet your appetite. You might be spurred on to learn more and dive deeper into the world of teaching, and, and that's great. I'm always on the lookout for those who have any interest in teaching, desire, gifting. One of my passions is to train people to teach the Bible. So, side note, if that's you, come see me. We can talk more later. And for others, you might never want to touch teaching with the 10-foot pole. You might be like, I, I don't want to teach. I'm not a teacher. I have no desire to be a teacher. But still, this might help you gain some perspective on what goes into teaching the Bible and maybe give you a better appreciation for the process, even though you might not be a teacher yourself. So like I said, for what it's worth, we're going to cover tonight just a, an introductory lesson on how to teach the Bible to give you more exposure to this big task of the biblical leader. Now, in many ways, this is going to be a bit of a continuation from last week, Lesson 10, How to Study the Bible. And that's because the process of teaching the Bible, well, if you can imagine, that process begins with studying the Bible. So we're dealing with, like, you've, you've gotten a text of Scripture. And hopefully you're going to study that first before you teach it, right? That, that should come first. And so everything we learned from last lesson is obviously going to carry over. You're doing Bible study first, then you're going to teach that lesson. So you're going to see overlap. Before you teach a passage of Scripture, you have to properly study a passage of Scripture. And that will involve all the steps of Bible study we, we covered last time. Pray, read, familiarize, organize, question, observe, bridge, consult, and interpret. If you weren't here, if those don't ring a bell, I think the previous lessons are on the website. You can get that crash course on how to study the Bible from last time. And now that we're going to transition to how do you take what you've studied and now form it into that spiritual meal? How do you transition that to now you want to, to communicate what you've learned to others, to teach others what the Word says and what the Word means? We're going to cover that tonight, but you'll see some overlap. That's, that just goes with the territory. So I wanted to you know, present to you this little crash course or overview on how to teach in a bit of a unique manner. I want to run you through what we might call the preaching pyramid or teaching pyramid. It's just a solid introduction and overview to the teaching process. It's in one of your handouts. Now, a few of you, looking around, just a handful, might remember this. I did a little teaching workshop here at the church. It was about two or three years ago, so you might, this might look a little familiar to you. But I use it often when training people to teach because it's just such a simple and valuable resource in quickly summarizing and capturing the teaching process, what goes into it. So go ahead and grab that handout. I'll just really quick at first show you what you're looking at, give you an overview of this paper, this one with all the boxes on it. You start, so you have nine boxes. You see the flow of arrows. You, you start at the bottom left, personal preparation. That's step one. And there are, these are technically nine steps. And you're going to finish in the bottom right, personal assimilation. And you go up, you come down. You see, these are the steps behind you know, teaching a lesson. Now you can, as I do, you can write or draw a line right down the middle and cut this pyramid in half, a left side and a right side. And the left side, that's where... The, the original audience of Scripture live. That's the then. In the left side, that's the Bible study. In the left side of the pyramid represents you're digging into the text, that you're studying the text, you're finding out what it originally meant. You're just you're, you're immersing yourself in the world of Scripture to find out what a passage of Scripture meant. 
The right side of the pyramid, though, is going to be dealing with today. This is now what this text means for today or how we can apply it to today. And uh, your goal is to bridge the gap between the then and the now. The left side of the pyramid is all about exegesis. That's a word of Bible study, studying the text. The right side of the pyramid is all about exposition. Now you're explaining the text. You're teaching it to others. And uh, you're going step by step. And uh, it comes to the top at the timeless truth. That's what bridges the gap between the then and the now. And uh, what we're going to do now is just take a little closer look at each of these nine steps to give you that introduction to the teaching process. And they'll, they'll fall in the line, hopefully, and make more sense as you go along. And you'll see how it flows. You'll see also how the parallel between the left side and the right side, see those arrows pointing between one another, how each step uh, corresponds to one another. You'll, you'll see that as we go. So let's begin with the first step, which is personal preparation. Personal preparation. This is before you, before you begin the task of even Bible study. You're sitting down, you're preparing yourself for the task, for the teaching task, which we believe is a serious task, right? And so a, a measure of personal preparation goes into it. This would include humility, humility before God, and prayer, praying for illumination, praying that the Spirit would give you eyes to to see and understand the word, praying for a perspective, just that God would help you in this task. We would include here humility before the word, where you're coming to a text of scripture, you're going to study, and you're going to submit to what the text says. You're not coming loaded with what you think it already means or what you want it to mean. You're coming as a blank slate. It's like, I want to submit to what the word says and just discover it and not make it say what you want it to say. You're really preparing to preach to yourself. You have humility before the task where you recognize you can't change anyone. Only God can change hearts and he's going to use his word and the spirit to do so. And so you're just trying to be faithful to this task. This is all, you know, kind of in your mind. These are the, the mental preparations for this task. You're, you're getting your frame of mind right for the task of, of handling and delivering the word. And you want to include here humility before people. Where you understand in this task, you're a servant, not a celebrity, and you're functioning as a shepherd, not a showman. And so in all, you just want to be faithful. You're, you're getting your mind straight to just, I want to be faithful. You're praying lots and asking the Lord to help you. So this is a step you, you don't want to skip. You want to just be praying and asking the Lord to help you study and teach the passage. So we could spend a lot of time there, but I'll leave it at that. You get the gist of it, though. Just You need to begin really devotionally praying and and seeking the Lord to to get it right, to teach it right as well. Okay, next step, analyze the text content. Analyze the text content. Again, this is, pretend you have a passage in mind, like a 1 John 1, 5 through 7. You're going to study that passage. And so this step right here is where, you know, all that overlap from last week comes in. You have a passage and this is where your the bulk of your Bible study is right here. Analyze the text content. Think of all the, the Bible study steps from last week, how to study the Bible, and this is it. You're putting most of them into practice right here. And so you're you're digging in, you're making your observations, you're you're reading the text, you're familiarizing yourself with the background, you're asking questions, you're integrating the context, making sure you understand how your passage fits into the whole. So maybe you're, you're studying all of 1 John chapter 1 or, or whatever it is. You're going to do some word studies, some repeated words or unique words, historical analysis, geographical analysis, cross-referencing, consulting commentaries, basically like everything we studied the past two weeks because it was a two-parter of how to study the Bible. All those steps, most of them are we're jamming right here into this second square of analyzing the text content. This is just your... You're studying the passage. You're not really thinking about teaching it right now. You're not worried about how it applies or how do I teach it. You're just studying the text. So like I said, the the teaching process is going to incorporate the study process and the left side of the pyramid is mostly the study process. And so we'll leave it at that. We basically already spent two weeks covering this square, you know, analyze the text content. This is just Bible study. That makes sense? Now, next, you're going to peer into the text structure. 
This is, in a way, a bonus step, but it helps you really understand the structure of your passage. This is where you might try and diagram the text based on your knowledge of of the grammar in in the English translation. You're basically just trying to isolate the main point of the passage and then all the subpoints. Trying to understand the internal structure of the text. And I have to say, uh, I, okay, you know, we're going to be going fast. This is a bit of a crash course, but this comes with a lot of practice and experience, being able to outline a passage. To look at a passage like First John 1, 5 through 7, which, hey, we'll use that as an example. Why don't you just turn there and we can read that really quick. It's in the notes a little bit later and it's kind of on the top of my head. You look at a passage like this and you can, if, if you're going to choose these three verses, you can find a way to organize them. And understand what the main point is. And it's just helping you understand the text. And you'll see later how the structure of the text itself is going to be incorporated into the structure of your teaching lesson. And that's where the, the arrows going uh, horizontally come into play. Where later your, your message's structure is going to be related to the, the structure of the text itself. And that's what you know, expositional preaching is all about. We're just letting the text speak for itself. So like, just a quick example here, First John 1, 5 through 7. After his little intro in verses 1 through 4, he says, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. You're studying this passage, you understand there, there's a, an essential truth given that God is light, uh, the, the, an essential thrust of being, you know, this is who God is, perfect in holiness. You see a quick contrast in verses 6 and 7 between two people who profess to have fellowship with this God who is light, but there's a contrast in their walk. You see key words showing up, walk in First John, that's big. One walks in darkness, the other walks in light. And one is revealed to be a false disciple. One is revealed to be a, a true disciple by how they walk. And so you're, a text, a structure, a way to outline this, you know, verse 5 is being, you know, a central truth about God. And verses 6 and 7, two contrasts of those who, who claim to know this God. Or, or something like that. You know, you're, you're getting the gist of it. A way to just look at a text and, and give an outline to, to expose its structure, its underlying structure. This, uh, you know, the formal term for this is an exegetical outline, just what, how we're, we're breaking down a, a passage of Scripture. And like I said, it's useful later when forming a teaching outline. Now, I said it does come with practice. There's some skill involved in diagramming or outlining a passage of Scripture. And you're going to do your best, but as we learned before, there's no shame in using some good resources and if you're going to be a, you know, a teacher of the Bible, if you're really going to invest and get into teaching the Word, you can get some great books on just, they're all about outlining and diagramming, right? So you would never buy this unless you were going to teach a passage, but this is just a book of outlines of uh, certain books of the Bible, the non-Pauline epistles and Revelation. You can come look at this later if you want, it's just an example of what a, you know, a book of outlines look like. But it's a helpful resource. You can Reference some commentaries and resources that help outline your passage. And it just helps you understand the flow. The main point and the subpoints really comes out in an outline. So that's exposing the text structure. Now we're going to keep moving up the pyramid to apprehending the text's intent. Apprehending the text's intent. And this step is, is basically where we left off last time. If you were here... We study the Bible study process. And if you remember, the very last step in that is to interpret. Where you, you have a passage like 1 John 1, 5 through 7, or, or whatever it is. And now you're, you're doing the work of interpretation. You're going from what the text says to what the text means. And you're arriving at the text intent, that authorial intent. Remember, if you were here, that the practical goal with that last step of Bible study I told you was to create a one-sentence past tense summary of the text's intent. Kind of remember that? Like a one-sentence past tense summary with the original author and the original audience. We want it one sentence, keep it simple. 
We want it uh, past tense because we're trying to find out what the original text meant. We want to see the original author in there and the original audience because that's what Scripture comes to us as, from authors writing to uh, their original audience. And so we gave some examples of this last time. You know, you may have, it's often pretty simple. You might have a passage like Philippians 2, 12 and 13. You know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And you might, well, we've got the author, Paul. We have the audience, the Philippian church. The intent to have them work out or live out their salvation while recalling God's work in them. So you could just boil that passage down and say, Paul writes to the Philippian church to exhort them to live out their salvation while recalling God's work in them. A simple example of how we're just now, you're summarizing the main point of the passage. It could be a longer passage, but still, just give us one sentence. Give us that one sentence summary where you're encapsulating the the main thrust of the passage. And that's going to bubble to the surface from all of that Bible study. So remember, this comes after a lot of Bible study of a given passage. Uh, you know, at, at this point, we're, we're not worrying about how the text applies to today or what it means for today. We're just in this square right here, this rectangle, the text intent. We're still on the left side of the pyramid, which means we're still dealing with you know, the Bible in its original setting. And so we want to stick with that past tense because later as we apply the word to today, that application is going to be directly related to the original meaning. And look, we're not the original audience. We're not the Philippian church. We're not the recipients of 1 John. And so a lot of direct application is is lost, but we know the word is timeless. And so later we're going to bridge the gap between the then and the now. Uh, But you're not going to get the now part right if you don't get the then part right. If you don't understand what the text originally meant, if you don't understand what Paul meant in Philippians 2, 12 and 13 for the Philippian church, you're going to get it wrong for how it applies today. Does that make sense? We need to make sure that whatever we're teaching is truly rooted and grounded in the truth, in the word itself, that we're not just making it up. Because you get, you get a ton of that today where people will you know, teach a Bible lesson and they'll, they'll tack on a few Bible verses in there. But the way they're using those verses has nothing to do with the original meaning of those verses. It's called proof texting. And they're just, it, it comes because they didn't do the Bible study. They didn't do the hard work and the labor to find out what does that text really mean in its context. And they're just throwing out the wall, seeing what sticks throwing some Bible verses. They're really just saying whatever they want to say. They'll throw a few verses up on the PowerPoint just to, you know, make it legitimate. But that's, that's not what we do. And that's not what we're going for. That's not you know, expositional teaching or preaching. We have to be you know, grounded in the truth and the text itself. And so here at the, the top of the left side, you, you've gotten to that. This is the fruit of all that labor where you have the, the original meaning of the passage boiled down into one sentence. You've got the main point. So, so far, relatively so good. You know, it's a lot, but again, there's just a, some exposure, a little thrown at you, what kind of goes into the teaching process. And so far, we actually haven't really left the Bible study process. This is all still mostly Bible study. But now we get to the top of the pyramid, and this is where we start to bridge that gap between the then and the now, because the Bible's an ancient book. It was written 2,000 plus years ago to people who are all dead and gone halfway around the world. And so in a sense, that has nothing to do with us today in 21st century America. We're not ancient Jews in the promised land 3,000 years ago. So you can ask, like, how does this book even relate to us at all today? It wasn't written to us directly. It has nothing to do with life today directly. But we know that scripture is timeless, inspired, profitable for teaching throughout the ages. And so this is where we're going to identify the timeless truth and the the principles that are in scripture, where even though we're not ancient Israel, for example, we still can benefit from the book of Judges and what it says and its message that God has a timeless message there for all his people in all ages. And this is now what we're going to extract, the very top of the pyramid. We're bridging that gap. So here's where you're going to take that one sentence summary 
of the text's intent, right? The, the fruit of all that Bible study. And you're going to ask, what's the timeless truth or principle taught in this sentence? What's the truth from this text that applies to all people, all generations, all cultures? You know, try and identify the timeless truth. You're essentially asking, what did God mean through the biblical author for, for me or for the church throughout time? Again, we're not the original audience, but we know all scripture is profitable for teaching. And so you're just connecting the dots now between the then and the now. And it's going to be related to what it meant back then, uh, the application or, or the message for today. It's going to be related, so just connect those dots. A word for this might be to principalize the text, to, to derive the principle, to principalize it, to find the main principle in the passage. You're looking for that which is timeless. Keep in mind here, this a little, you know, bonus, but you want to consider the differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant because not all Scripture is timeless. For example, the Law of Moses no longer directly applies to the church. That's part of an Old Covenant. If that's new to you, you know, just do more study. You've got to know a bit of the Bible to teach it, but you've you've got to just identify through maturity, wisdom, knowledge, what is timeless here. Things like, look, the fallen human condition is timeless. Our sin problem is timeless. The gospel is timeless. You know, everything about God and Christ is timeless. A lot of elements of culture or circumstances are not timeless. And so you're going to just identify what is the timeless truth being taught here. What is uh, profitable for God's people, keeping in mind the new covenant and a progressive revelation and, and so forth. So uh, some examples are really going to help you just seal this in. We'll get to them in just a second. Uh, I want to give you one more uh, rectangle here, and then we'll give you some examples on those top three, you know, uh, steps. And I, hopefully, that will really seal it in for you, what we're even talking about. Examples that go a long way. So, that, that top step, though, identify the timeless truth. You've done that. It, it's, it's still a one-sentence deal. You've just taken your your one sentence from the past and, and drawn out what's timeless there. Here's the text. Here's what it originally meant. Here's what's timeless. Now it's time to, to teach that, right? You, that's the total fruit of all that Bible study. You've, you've taken a passage of scripture. You've studied it pretty deep. You found out what it originally meant. You now identify its, its value and profit for the church today. And you could just, you could be done. You could just pack it up and you've learned that lesson and be done. Go home. And that's fine. But if you're going to teach it, your work's not done. You now have to take what you've learned and communicate that to whoever you're teaching. So now we're getting to the right side of the pyramid. And these rectangles all deal with the teaching process or how we now take everything we've learned and communicate it to others. And it's its own little art. Before we get into these next, you know, uh, rectangles, an illustration I like to use and I use often about that this whole process, these two sides of the pyramid, you know, what goes into teaching, it's kind of like you're, you're a cook and you are preparing a, a meal for someone. You're going to prepare a, maybe a steak dinner for a crowd, but you start off with a cow, a live cow. And so this is, this is the process. You're starting off with a live cow. And you want to end up with a steak dinner. So what's going to happen in between? Well, step one is butchering. You've got to butcher the cow. You butcher it. You cut it up. You, you cut the choice cut. You're, you're kind of digging through. You're, you're discarding things that aren't relevant, things you're not going to serve. Yeah, you learn a lot about the cow as you're butchering it, but you're still after that one, you know, maybe a filet mignon or whatever cut you want. And you're just doing that kind of dirty work of butchering the cow. And a lot of work goes into it, and when you're all finished, you've got, with maybe some, some bloody hands, you've got your cut of meat. But it's not ready for consumption. It's just a, a raw cut of meat. It still needs to be prepared, because as it is, it's, it's good, it's valuable. People would pay good money for it, but it's not digestible. It must be cooked. It must be prepared in a way that people can consume and digest. So, You've butchered the cow. You've got that choice cut of meat. Now you've got to cook it. You've got to prepare it, 
cook it however you're going to cook it. Maybe you'll, you'll grill it. And because you're a cook, you'll add some garnishes, maybe a side or two. Hey, maybe I'll throw in an appetizer and even a dessert and prepare a whole meal now to serve someone. And so you get the illustration. It actually really captures this, this whole process because the left side of the pyramid is butchering the cow. That's what you're doing. You're, just, you're doing that work of taking a text and just cutting it up. You're studying it. You're diving deep. You're getting your hands dirty. Your fruit is the, the, the meaning of the passage. You've got your choice cut of meat. I found it. This is what this passage means. This is what God intended in 1 John 1, 5 through 7 for, for me, for the church today. You've got your, your choice cut of meat. Now you want to give it to others. And you can, you can if you want, you know, take everything you've learned and just kind of shove it down people's throats and just back the dump truck up to them and just unload on them and dump on them everything you've learned. That's not digestible, though. I mean, if that were the case, on Sunday mornings, I could just stand up and read a commentary to you instead of preaching. But we don't do that. It's not digestible for that environment. So your work's not done. You have to take that passage and the meaning of the passage and now prepare it for digestion. And you're going to throw in an introduction, a little appetizer. You'll, you'll add a conclusion, a little dessert. You'll, you'll throw in some garnish, some illustrations. All designed, though, to just get that main point into the, the stomachs of your people. That they can receive and digest and then really apply the word to their lives. And so now the right side of the pyramid is all about cooking. Now you're cooking and preparing to serve, to present to people that in a way they can understand, in a way they can digest. Look, some people can handle the raw stuff. Some people like sushi, like myself. And so they can handle just maybe a heavier dose, a little more raw, not as prepared. And they like it that way. But some people maybe are brand new Christians and they need you to put that thing in a blender and make it real simple for them. And so you got to know your audience, but you're still, you got to, this is now we're preparing everything we've learned to present in a way people can receive and really apply. That is all the art and the skill of, of teaching. So now we're going to isolate the sermon's intent. Now I'm calling it a sermon. It could be a Bible study. It could be a lesson. I'm just going to call it a sermon, but just a little lesson you want to teach. Okay, you've studied a passage. Now you want to teach it. Where do you begin? What do you do? Well, the first step here on the right side of the pyramid is what's the main point? What's the main point of your lesson? What are you teaching? Well, identify the main point. And that's the sermon's intent. We call this a proposition, a proposition statement or a proposition sentence. This is like, like remember in high school, you wrote an essay and it had to have a thesis. This is the thesis. This is that the main point of your message. All, your entire message is going to be designed to communicate and just drive home this main point. Why? Because that's the text's main point. The text has a main point. You're going to communicate that main point. So now you see how the arrows going between the text's intent and the sermon's intent, see how those arrows go between one another because they must relate. They, they need to relate. They're not entirely the same thing, but your sermon's intent is going to be drawn from the text's intent while incorporating that timeless truth. Again, we'll get to examples in just a second. But a proposition is what we call it. All sermons or Bible lessons should have a proposition, especially for kind of beginners. It it keeps it really standard and it's a good way to go. Proposition is just the main point of the lesson. It's the thesis. It's your, your purpose statement, what you're trying to communicate, what you want people to consider or accept or adopt or do. Just a statement of biblical truth based on biblical principle related to the text's intent. So uh, before I talk more about propositions, look at that other paper and you see some examples to, to bridge these in your mind. So we have uh, some examples. We've <clears throat> These are actually part of... Uh, when we covered years ago that how to study the Bible uh, class we did here on Sunday nights, we, we actually covered some of these. But you see some examples from Ephesians, First John, and Job. You see the text intent. 
That's the top left of the pyramid, the timeless truth, and then the sermon's intent. And uh, you know, we won't have time to read these passages, but Ephesians 5, that's that passage on marriage, Christ and the church, exhortations to husbands and wives. You study that passage. You might come away with this when it comes to the text's intent. Right here's that one sentence, past tense, original author, original audience, right? Paul instructed the Ephesians that there is a reciprocating relationship between marriage and the gospel. He's showing in that passage how marriage and the gospel reveal something about one another. There's a reciprocating relationship between marriage and the gospel. It's kind of the essence of that passage. And so that's, that's what it meant. That's what he was trying to communicate in inspir- under inspiration. What's the timeless truth? Well, it's, it's, it's rather simple. You know, going from these top three steps, it's actually not that difficult if you do your work. So the timeless truth is, well, there is a reciprocating relationship between marriage and the gospel. That doesn't change. That, that whole passage is timeless. Marriage is, is a, not a cultural custom. That's a timeless institution given by God. So it really just carries right over. Now, how would we put this in a proposition or a sermon's intent? This is where you, the art comes in. There's many ways to do this. But here, for example, you can make it a how-to. How to display the gospel in marriage. And you can now teach that passage, communicating to people that there is a relationship between marriage and the gospel. And here's how you can display the gospel in your marriage. Or you could do something else. So again, that's where kind of the sky's the limit, but uh, hopefully you can see the connection here. First John 1, 5 through 7 that we just read. John is writing to Christians so that they may have fellowship with the God who is light, which depends on having an accurate view of and response to sin. That's, that's what he was aiming at in that passage. The timeless truth there, it should be evident. To have fellowship with the God who is light, you must have a biblical view of and response to sin. You can't be walking in darkness and and think you're going to have fellowship with the God of light. You have to have a a right view of and response to sin. The sermon's intent, you could go with, you can go in this direction, like, you know, two pictures of the Christian walk so that you may have true fellowship with the God who is light. Playing off of the, the contrast there in verses six and seven. Again, that, that third column, the sermon's intent, you could go in many directions. That's just one example. One more here, Job one and two. That's a big passage, but in many ways, those two chapters go together, the introduction to Job and being narrative. You could teach two whole chapters in one lesson. And if you did that, you study that passage, what, what's, what are those chapters all about? Well, the text intent, you know, Moses writes to Israel to show how Job's righteousness kept him from sinning, but not from suffering. And to show that the servant of God will accept both good and bad from God, yet still worship him. There's a lot of rich truth in that, but that's the intent of Job 1 and 2. The timeless truth, we can simplify it in a sense. God's righteous sovereignty uses perceived evil. It's kind of meaty there, but that, there's, that's a deep passage on God's sovereignty and the use of evil. And you could now deliver that in a message using kind of a narrative style and with uh, the path to peace in the midst of trials and kind of walk through the passage as a, a running commentary. The path to peace in the midst of trials where you would now expose and unfold to them how God uses evil uh, righteously for his good purposes. So anyway, there's just a few examples. This is something that comes with time and practice and example. But hopefully now you better understand really that the gist of these top three portions of the, the pyramid. You, you've done your Bible study. You've got that choice cut of meat. Here's what the passage means. And, and you're starting to cook it now and you're getting over to here's how we can deliver this to God's people today. Based off the timeless truth, here's what it it means for the church and in relation to what it originally meant. So again, isolate the sermon's intent. You've got your proposition. You're going to teach a passage. You've done the study. So your first step now is to identify that proposition. What is the main point of your message? Pretty much every message should have a single theme that is crystal clear. That main point, 
Otherwise, you're just going to be all over the place and people will get quite lost. Your proposition should answer a couple of questions. What is the point of this message? What is the essence of what I plan to communicate? You're, just, you're trying to keep it simple and simplify the truth for people to digest. You're giving them a map of where you're going. Some people think that you know, the, the more they can confuse people, the, the better teachers they are, like the more they can just wow people with their knowledge and their understanding, the better a teacher they are. But that, to me, that's the worst teacher because the whole goal is that people will understand. And so you're not just trying to dump on people and wow them with your intellect, but help them. It, the, to me, the, the real sign of a, a great teacher is one who can take extremely complicated and complex truths and teach them to a child in a way that a child can understand. Not to say we don't want sometimes the, the meat, uh, sometimes like, hey, I'll take a, a good portion of meat, but even still, it has to be in a way that people can understand. And knowing your audience, if you're teaching in a seminary classroom, that's one thing, but typically in a local church, it's, you know, you've got lay people with varied understandings and various places in their walk with the Lord. So you want to to make sure it's in a way that they can grasp. Also in your proposition, your main point, often you want to include a, what we might call a, a so that, a so that statement. And this just, you're communicating the, the desired result of the sermon. You know, how to display the gospel in marriage so that you might have a marriage that glorifies Christ. Right? Just, you're including the so that. It's answering the question, so what? Because as a, as a young teacher, you might teach a passage and you're just giving information, information, information. And like, okay, we've learned a lot. We've learned a lot of data. And we're left wondering like, okay, so what? Like, what are we supposed to do with this? What, like, so what? Oh, you've told us all this stuff, so what? And so you want to include a so that which answers the so what. Like, okay, the, the gospel reflects on marriage. That's, that's cool, I guess. Like, okay, so what? Well, so that you now can incorporate this into your marriage, that you can be the husband who reflects gospel in marriage, and you can be that wife who reflects the gospel in her marriage. You're just trying to make sure you're connecting the dots with uh, how this applies. What, what's, what's the result I want to see come from this message in the people? We could go a lot further here with propositions that there's a lot of art behind it, how you, how you phrase, how you word that, that main point. But I'll leave that as you know, kind of an advanced topic for those who dive deeper into teaching. So uh, for now, though, hopefully you get the gist of, of uh, isolating the sermon's intent. Now you're, you're good to go, though. You've got your main point. And now you're just kind of, you're going to continue to build out the skeleton of your message. And so that's the next, the next uh, rectangle here. Organize the sermon structure. You're going to build a skeleton to switch metaphors. You're, you're creating the skeleton for your message. Later, you'll add the muscles. You'll add the meat. You'll add the skin. You'll add, you know, the, the hair. But first, let's get the skeleton going on. The, the structure. Organize the sermon structure. This is where you're, you're going to make a little outline for teaching. This is a teaching outline now. Remember earlier, we talked about expose the text structure. We called that an exegetical outline. That's an outline that's just based on the text. It's just purely based on the text. Now, though, we're going to incorporate some of that into our messages outline. We call this a homiletical outline. Homiletics, that's the art of teaching and preaching. And so uh, it's going to relate to the text structure, oftentimes, unless you're getting really creative, but you want to have a structure that just communicates the main point and the subpoints in just a very clear, simple manner. Uh, this organizes the teacher's explanation, development, and application of a passage's truths. General principles, if you're making an outline, okay, you've got your passage, you've studied it, you've got your proposition, you know what you're, what you're getting at here, your main point. Now you want to create an outline based on your proposition. Some principles here would be unity, where it, it kind of, they gel together. All of your various points gel together. Maybe, you're, maybe you're, you're talking about two pictures of the Christian walk. And so it's a, it's a two-point outline. And you want to phrase it in such a way that it, it's, it's harmonious. Keep it brief. We don't need a, 
you know, a five-page outline here, just, you know, main points and maybe a few subpoints, and that's it. Keep your outline brief and simple. Always wins. Uh, symmetry is helpful, where it's just kind of consistent. Uh, helps the mind a bit uh, and, and should be uh, really distinct. You want to be able to make sure each point you have relates to your proposition. So take it back to high school. Remember, you're writing that essay. You start with your thesis, like here's the main point of your essay. And then you have your three body paragraphs. And each of those body paragraphs have to relate back to your thesis. They have to somehow contribute and build off of the thesis. It's no different in teaching. Otherwise, you're, 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 you're going off track, right? You're just, hey, rein it in here. Give us the main point, And all the points you're giving need to relate back to that main point. So if you're talking about how to display the gospel in marriage, and you're going to give five points with that, those five points better connect to how to display the gospel in marriage. Otherwise, get rid of them and, and teach it some other time. See what I'm saying? You want to make sure it's relating to whatever you're teaching on. Otherwise, you're going to be all over the place. Again, that's typical among young teachers. They're just they're, they're anxious and excited to teach, and they're just starting to overload. But just, you know, chop them, some things off and just keep us with the main point. Again, don't overuse subpoints. Let simplicity reign. Try and be as parallel as possible. And there's more tips here we could go into, but I think that'll suffice. I have some examples for you just on your handout. Again, seeing examples really helps. And here, there, there's also books that are just nothing but outlines. Uh, I'm talking now uh, preaching outlines or homiletical outlines. Those are helpful as well. Some examples, like James 1, 1 through 12. You might have a proposition phrase as a how-to. How to endure trials with four points. Have the right attitude. Pray the right prayers. Have the right identity. See the right prize. It's, if you study that passage as we did months ago, you see how that's derived from the text. That comes right from the text. But it's packaged in a way that's appealing. You got some great parallelism going on there. It, it catches the eye. It's just simple enough to give our minds some, some places to go with each point without you know, blowing us out of the water. And it, it helps us to endure trials. You know, your outline should serve you and you should never be the slave of your outline. It should be serving you and make sure that's the case. Second Corinthians six fourteen through 7. You know, I'll let you read that on your own. We're running short on time here. Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. We studied that a little while ago on Wednesday nights. Should be a little fresher in your mind. You could, uh, you know, the main point there, you know, blessed be God. It's an exaltation. We are to exalt God. So you might phrase your proposition, three reasons to praise God. Three reasons to praise God, we might add, so that you might praise God, for example. You know, first, God has elected us in Christ. Second, God has dealt with us through grace. Third, God has sealed us with the Holy Spirit. Again, derived from the text, but packaged in a way that captures the main point and then the three main subpoints of that passage, and you're now just going to communicate that. So, uh, if you're, again, those interested, I give you a lot more examples, but for now, you understand this next uh, rectangle. Organize the sermon structure. You're, you're building up your message based on the text itself, and you're now just transitioning that into a, a teaching outline. How am I going to teach this lesson? You've got to have flow and really think about the logic and the logical flow of the passage. You want to communicate that. So at the end of this step, you've got a proposition, and you've got an outline. You've got really a, your, your skeleton. And now you're going to really build in the content of your message, the teaching content. And so this is the next to last rectangle. Synthesize the sermon's content. This is where the bulk of your work is going to be now as a teacher, where you're now crafting a message. You're writing it out. See how it parallels analyze the text content? Remember how that was a huge step? That's all of your Bible study in that big step. Well, here in the, the message side, this is the other big step where you're now taking everything you learned, deciding what to include, maybe what not to include, and you're just, you're typing, you're writing, you're, you're now crafting your message. Uh, here, a, a simple way to do it, with, uh, for, especially for beginners, is to remember uh, a few little uh, your tips. One, for example, 
you have your proposition. You have, let's say you have three main points that you, you have in your outline. Now, under each point, you want to build them out. And so uh, a simple way to remember that is explain, illustrate, apply. Explain, illustrate, apply. For each of your points, explain, illustrate, apply. Explain, illustrate, apply. That's what you're trying to do. So point number one, okay, you state your point. And now you want to first explain it to them. You're going to go through and and tell them, here's what the text says. Here's what it means. Maybe you add a little bit of your study so that they can see for themselves what it means. You're, You're explaining the passage. You're explaining that point. And then you illustrate it that they can really grasp it for today. You know, the Bible was written a long time ago, far away, with a foreign world, so some modern illustrations can help bridge that gap. They can understand the point with an illustration. So you explain it, you illustrate it, and then you apply it. You, you now really deliver it to their lives, how the, what the text means should impact them. And do that for all three of your points. Explain, illustrate, apply. Point two. Explain, illustrate, apply. Point three, explain, illustrate, apply. And it's super simple. You grow as a teacher. You can kind of break free from those bonds. But early on, that's a very good, simple way to craft a little lesson, a faithful little lesson. You add some extras here. So, okay, you have your your proposition, your main point. You have your outline. Maybe there's three points. You start filling it in. Explain, illustrate, apply. Now we'll add some extras. This is that garnish, right? Well, throw in the introduction, introduction to your message. Before you even get to your proposition, have a little introduction. And this, at times, is one of the most important elements of your sermon because the goal of an introduction is to simply capture your audience's attention and give them a reason to listen. You're trying to, to grab them. This is the, the skill of a teacher to, to make sure you know, like, here's what we're going to talk about, and here's why you need to listen, and you should listen. You want to capture the attention of the listener, trying to expose a need in your audience. Like, you need to hear this, and here's why. You're also introducing the subject matter. You're kind of getting them closer to what you're going to be talking about. Oftentimes, you're going to ask some questions that need to be answered and uh, orient them to the passage. And so, uh, this is all art. This is all part of the, the skill and the craft of teaching, but find a way to create a little introduction that gets them situated to the text, the subject, the need, like I did tonight with the little uh, wedding gift illustration. It shows you know, how the gift of cooking has a parallel to the gift of learning how to teach. Just a way to grab your audience's attention and get them kind of drawn in and then expose a need, why they need to listen for the next however long you're going to talk. Same thing goes for a conclusion where you're, you're wrapping it up, you're, you're repeating that main point and making sure you're driving home that application. So you add an intro, you add a conclusion, and then you're, you're going to dabble in some illustrations. Like I said, for each point, explain, illustrate, apply. And uh, a few notes on illustrations. Illustrations are like windows, Spurgeon taught. You, it's good to have a few of them. You don't want a room with no windows. It's just, it's dark, it's dreary, it's boring. You need some illustrations. They, they add some light in. They give a little breath of fresh air. You don't want too many. Think of a house that's nothing but windows. You don't really want that either. You need some structure. You need some pillars. You need some foundation. That's, that's your teaching, your explanation. But a good illustration can just let some breath in and some air in and freshen people up and bring the truth to life. You don't want to distract from the point, but, but emphasize it. And uh, for help here, just study Jesus an expert in using illustrations and teaching. Read Matthew 5 through 7, Sermon on the Mount, and just highlight every time he used an illustration. Illustrations are all about taking the unknown and making them known by by referencing something else. So Jesus, he's teaching deep spiritual truths, but he's talking about, you know, birds and seeds and trees and grapes and vines and doors and, and you name it. He's talking about all these simple things of life, but he's using the known to to tell you the unknown. And that's the essence of an illustration. Like, hey, you know about doors, right? You know how doors work. Well, Jesus says, I'm the door. And a simple illustration, he's he's teaching you something based on doors. And, you know, you you get the point. Um, Many different types of illustrations. Uh, I'll leave that for for later. We're kind of out of time. Um, 
I'll add here one more thing, and that's the gospel. So you're, you're synthesizing the sermon's content. You've got your proposition. You've got your main point. You've got your outline going on. Okay, three points. Under each point, you're building out the body, explaining, illustrating, applying. You tack on that intro and your conclusion. That's a good lesson. You're, you've got a good lesson going on there. You're, you're getting there. Uh, uh, one more reminder is to make sure the gospel is included. Some point or another. Especially, you know, given your audience, if, if you know there's going to be unbelievers, make sure you're including the gospel. But you have an opportunity. You're teaching the word. You're ministering the word in, in some capacity. And uh, this is not an intellectual exercise. We have the words of life. This is part of the, the entrustment that goes into teaching. And to, to do your best to make sure that, that some of the essence of the gospel is being communicated in, in at least most of your lessons. You never know if an unbeliever is going to be present as you're teaching or even preaching. And we know that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. If you never say it, they'll never hear it. And so just make sure, especially from time to time, you're, you're tying in elements of your lesson to the words of life. And trust me, you can tie in the gospel to, to any part of scripture. It, it's, it's just woven into the fabric of scripture. We want to make sure that comes out in our teaching. Because after all, teachers are not just data dumpers, we are ministers of the gospel fundamentally. Is that what we've been studying about the biblical leader? Ministers of the gospel. So just make sure that comes across in your lesson some way or another. Okay, so that's, that's in, a, in a short manner, that's it. I mean, you, you put those steps together and you start writing and crafting and you've now built up a lesson, which you'll then go teach. You have your notes, you've typed out your outline and all of your notes there. And now it's just up to you to deliver it. And that's its own kind of art, the art of delivery, but that's for another day. A final step would be personal assimilation. Again, the parallel to personal preparation. This is now after all your study, you go through your sermon and basically you preach it to yourself. Before you teach that lesson to someone else, you, you make sure you teach it to yourself and you make sure you apply it to yourself first. Look, you're not perfect. I'm not perfect. There's going to be ways you fall short as a teacher, but nonetheless, this is God's grace to teachers where you can apply it to yourself and, and you teach that message to your own heart first and really take it in as an act of worship and devotion. And that God will use to truly prepare you to now teach it to others and uh, communicate it to others. And so with that, we'll finish. That is, you might say, the whirlwind version of how to teach. Not so bad, right? Not so bad. But anyway, hey, keep this paper if you want at least, and uh, to me it's a good quick reference to just in a somewhat simple way capture the process and what goes into teaching the Bible. It comes with time, it comes with training. And I'll say again, if it's for you, some of you are like, maybe tonight just purely confirmed, not for me. I don't want to teach, not a teacher, and that's okay. I meet many people like that, and hey, look, we're not all the mouth. Some are hands, some are feet. Praise God for that. But if you feel like, you know, I might be a mouth, or I'd like to try teaching, or I have a desire, uh, like I said, come see me, because it's something that uh, really does benefit from fostering, from discipleship, from growth, from, from being challenged, and uh, being uh, guided as well. So uh, come see me or, or Oliver. We'd love to take you through more about how to teach. Love to see teachers rise up from within the church who can help share and study and, and uh, communicate the word. That's a wonderful thing. And so if, that, if this whole lesson bears fruit and one person wants to go further in teaching, uh, I'll be happy. So anyway, let's, let's finish our time with a word of prayer. Hopefully this intro at least uh, gave you some good exposure, and we'll, we'll finish our time up now. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord God, we're, we're grateful for your word of truth and, and for teachers, for those you've called and gifted and, and raised up to communicate it. Your word is truth. We know we'll be sanctified by it. And in a sense, Lord, you've, look, you've given us the Holy Spirit. And as John says in 1 John 2, we have no need for anyone to teach us. We have the Spirit of truth who is sufficient to guide us into all truth. But at the same time, Lord, in, in another sense, you've given the church pastors and teachers because in another sense, we do need teachers. We, we can greatly benefit from those who have studied the word and can communicate it at a high level, yet also a digestible level. And so we we want to thank you for teachers, for the, the church at large, 
the many we listen to you know, online, teachers at this church. We're grateful for those you've gifted and called in this manner, Lord. And I pray you raise up more in this local church, that you work in the hearts of some to build up a desire, and you, you pair that with some study, some equipping and training, and that we can see a, a new generation rise up who has a passion to communicate your word and a, and, a, and a skill as well. That's how the world changes. That's how communities change when people can communicate the word effectively. I pray that's true for all of us and for some, especially as teachers as well. So bless us and keep us till next time, Lord. We give you thanks for, for all things and, and our time, certainly in Christ's name we pray. Amen.